Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorna. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 6145 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 90-meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Lohoko and Tami Kuza. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour... Burundi's President Pierre Nkurunziza sworn in for a third term. And the UN vows to stamp out sexual abuse by peacekeepers in the Central African Republic. In economics, power blackouts disrupt mining operations in Zambia. And in sports news, South African coach named squad for AFCON qualifier. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. The United States has sharply criticized the inauguration of Pierre Nkurunziza for a third term as president of Burundi, warning that political dialogue and international efforts to mediate were key to bringing stability to the country. Nkurunziza was sworn in following weeks of protests and a failed coup against him. After being sworn in, Nkurunziza urged tens of thousands of people who fled the political violence to return home. The UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon has also taken note of the inauguration of Pierre Nkurunziza. In a statement, Ban reiterated his call for all Burundian stakeholders to undertake an inclusive and transparent political dialogue. He stressed that this is necessary to overcome existing deep political divisions. The Guinean government has signed an agreement with the opposition making adjustments on two disputing points ahead of a presidential election in October. Government sources say the deal allows for more opposition representation in local administration and sees reform of the Elections Commission. Former South African President Tabumbeki says the debate around South African government's decision not to arrest Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir needs to be discussed with the International Criminal Court. Mbeki was addressing students at the University of South Africa. Last week, the government said it would appeal a high court judgment that ordered it to arrest al-Bashir, who was wanted by the ICC, while he was in South Africa for an AU meeting in June. Mbeki says Africa leaders need to take such concerns to the ICC. Where you have uh, the population of Sudan saying we need this man in order to end the wars that are going on, 
and then you say somebody else comes and say, I need to arrest that person. Uh, so this thing needs to be discussed between the African continent and the, and the International Criminal Court so that if it's necessary to amend whatever is in the Rome Statute, it's necessary to do that. A journalist has been shot dead in South Sudan days after the president allegedly threatened the media. Peter Julius Moy, a reporter for the Corporate Weekly, was shot dead on Wednesday. The attack comes days after President Silvakir was reported to have threatened to kill reporters working against the country. Moy is the seventh journalist killed this year in the country. Chairman of the Union of Journalists of South Sudan, Oliver Modi, says he believes the killing was intentional. And finally, the Parole Review Board has confirmed it's received a request for a hearing on South African Paralympian Oscar Pistorius' release. But so far, no date has been set. Pistorius was due to be released on probation today, but the country's Justice and Correctional Services Minister, Michael Masuta, intervened this week to block his release. Masuta requested a review, saying he wants to make sure the law has not been misinterpreted. Pistorius is serving a five-year sentence for culpable homicide of to killing Riva Sienkamp. Attorney Clifford Gordon explains some of the defence team's options. They have to consider the issue, call in a senior, senior counsel and, and his, uh, they might be busy on other matters. They'd also have to consider the minister's decision and provide a considered response. So they're probably um, hard at work. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. It's 806 Central African Time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Burundi's President Pian Kurunzinza was sworn in yesterday in a surprise ceremony in the capital, Bujumbura. In his speech, President Kurunzinza gave himself a two-month deadline to restore peace and stability in the Central African troubled nation. Bernard Bankukira has more from Bujumbura. This is President Pian Kronziza swearing fidelity to the Charter of the National Unity, to the Constitution of the Republic of Burundi, and to the law, engaging himself to dedicate all his forces to the defense of the superior interests of the nation, to assure the national unity and the cohesion of the Burundian people, social peace and justice, to fight any ideology and practice of genocide and of exclusion, to promote and defend the individual and collective rights and exclusion and freedoms of the person and of the citizen, and to safeguard the integrity and the independence of the Republic of Burundi. In his speech on the occasion, during the ceremony under high security alert, President Pierre Nkurunziza criticized those who opposed the electoral process, reminding that elections are the only way of achieving power in a democratic way. We'd like to condemn all those who combated elections through the coup attempt, aiming at obstructing democracy. We'd like to tell them to stop as soon as they can. Thanks to security forces and all Burundians who vividly combated such an old ideology, it should serve as an example to all Burundians and to international community. 
in a country striving to strengthen peace, security and justice like our country, there is no any other way of accessing to legitimate power other than through elections, as we all agreed through Arusha Peace Agreement. We're going to do all what we can to strengthen peace and security by rehabilitating all infrastructures destroyed following the misunderstandings over these elections. President Kurunziza called upon all political parties to look back to their disciplinary clauses and reject any divisive ideologies wherever they might come from. We call on all political parties to look back to their disciplinary clauses, patience and harmony. They should reject any divisive ideas wherever they might come from. You should avoid violence based on your ideologies, ethnicity, origins and others. In your activities, you are all required to respect human rights. You should refrain from anything that may cause insecurity. Human life is a sacred property. As the civil society organizations strongly oppose his third term bid, calling Burundians to the streets for several weeks to say no to his candidacy, President Pierre Nkurunziza announced the revision of the organic law for civil society organizations to avoid their involvement in politics. He also demanded religious leaders to refrain from politics that would derail them from their main task, that is, preaching the word of God. We would like to warn all civil society organizations not to involve into political activities. They should refrain from anything that might steer violence, from instigating hatred as it transpired from the recent crisis. Instead, you should support the population in their development activities as you promised. We would like to invite religious leaders to carry on with preaching the word of God as assigned by the Almighty. You should refrain from intruding into politics which might derail you from your major task. You should continue to support development in the country without forgetting to deliver messages aiming at respecting human rights and harmony among citizens. In his speech, President Nkurunziza cautioned that he would not tolerate whoever would think of waging war against Burundi. I invite all Burundians to join me to halt all those terrorist groups and murderers who promise to achieve this objective within a period of two months. We would like to announce to all Burundians and the international community that after this electoral process, the country is going to enjoy durable peace, security, and prosperity. We warn whoever will try to constitute an obstacle, be it a Burundian or a foreigner, we will combat them and they will be in trouble. The swearing-in ceremony of this Thursday came as a surprise to many residents in Bujumbura. Just a tweet from the Burundi presidency announced the event in the morning around 7 o'clock. Nobody was aware of that. A considerable number of heavily armed military and police were deployed in several parts of the capital, especially in the protesting neighborhoods, creating panic among residents of Bujumbura who thought of an invasion. Security remained beefed up till later in the afternoon as the first and second vice presidents had also to be sworn in before President Pierre Nkurunziza. President Nkurunziza won the controversial presidential polls of July 21st amid bloody protests that broke out on April 26th in the wake of the announcement of his candidacy for his third term. It's to highlight that not so many foreign leaders were present except some diplomats accredited in Bujumbura. Only representatives of Egypt, China, Tanzania, 
Kenya, South Africa, Russia and Vatican attended the ceremony. For Channel Africa, this is Bernard Bankukira reporting from Mujumbura. Meanwhile, U.S. Special Envoy to the Great Lakes region, Thomas Piriello has called for a political dialogue in Burundi to bring back stability in the Central African nation. He was speaking after meeting Rwandan President Paul Kagame in Kigali. Silvanus Karamera reports from Kigali. Despite the wave of condemnation from international platforms on his re-election, President Honuziza now confirms his third term in office, but Burundian refugees in Rwanda have expressed their concern over string of killings mainly targeting high-ranking officials in Burundi. Clive Mbonimha, a Burundian refugee living in Rwanda, says no hope of returning home as a refugee. I am worried about peace in Burundi. You remember those who attempted to top the government in May this year. They ran away with weapons. And apparently, they have been fighting the government forces and have been a string of killings. With that, how do you expect peace in Burundi? The United States of America special envoy to the Great Lakes region, Thomas Perriero, said in Kigali that the current situation in Burundi is becoming both regional and international concern. Well, the most important issues right now are for leaders on all sides to call for peaceful solutions and eschewing violence, including that that we've already seen from various sides, and that a political dialogue must uh, be reconvened uh, with leadership from the East African community. But this is something that's going to have to involve all partners in the region, as well as inside Burundi and the United States, the UN, and, and other members of the international community stand ready to support that. He was speaking with the media after meeting President Paul Hagame and the Burundi centered their discussion as well as security challenges in the Great Lakes region. There has been a widespread concern of a possible involvement of FDLR in the Burundian crisis, which fueled counter accusations between Kigali and Bujumbura. The U.S. Special Envoy admits the lack of progress in tackling the group, which has been perceived as one of the key causes of instability in the Great Lakes region. We shared with uh, President Kagame, and this is something my predecessor, Senator Russ Feingold, felt as well, which is frustration for the lack of progress on the FDLR and understanding that it is one of several uh, root causes of instability in the region. Uh, we will continue to push in the position of the United States government to pursue that issue uh, and understand that it is something that uh, has been around for far too long as a cause of instability and that we will continue to push for progress and express our frustration where, where we do not see that progress being made. After Rwanda, he's expected to visit Tanzania, DRC and Angola in a bid to get an insight on the regional matters he was last month appointed for. Reporting from Chigari for Channel Africa, this is Sivanus Karimera. South Sudan mediators say there will be no change in text of the peace agreement when the government of South Sudan comes back after 15 days. The mediation insists that changes were already made to the last draft to accommodate most of the government's concerns. President Salva Kiir has reportedly promised the U.S. press secretary that he will sign the agreement. Koleta Wanjohi tells us more on this agreement. An agreement of peace to end the South Sudan 20-month civil war was signed only by the rebel faction on 17th of August this year in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Government of South Sudan demanded for 15 more days to further review what it termed as unacceptable provisions of the agreement. So what does this agreement provide? The agreement that is yet to be signed by the government of South Sudan pronounces that there shall be the formation of a transitional government of national unity 30 days after the agreement is signed. There will be a transitional period of 30 days, then the transitional government will last for 30 months. 
National elections are to be held by the transitional government 60 days before it ends to allow for a democratic elected government. According to the agreement, the powers of this government will be shared among the government of South Sudan that will take 53% of the seats and the rebel faction 33%, while the rest will be shared by former detainees and other political parties. The agreement provides that the current president of South Sudan will be the president of the transitional government and the post of first vice president will be taken by the rebel faction. During this period, each will lead his own army until a unified army is achieved. However, the agreement suggests that in some vital issues, the president must consult with the first vice president, who in this case will be from the rebel faction, and agreements must be mutual in order to be implemented. The government of South Sudan, however, reportedly wants consultation with the second vice president only, who is from the equatorial region. Chief mediator of the South Sudan Peace Talks, Seyum Mesfin, says this will be a selfish move. But we cannot say the government is not facing challenges. I know the government is facing challenges, huge challenges within the camp. I hope they will stand together for peace to reign in South Sudan. We hope they will understand that South Sudan has got resources that would be enough for all of them. South Sudan is an asset not only to its own people but including to the region and the continent. Another sticking issue is what has been termed as demilitarization of Juba. The agreement provides that all military forces within Juba shall be redeployed outside a radius of 25 kilometers from the center of the national capital, beginning 30 days after the signing of this agreement and completed after 90 days. The South Sudan government is opposed to this, saying that it defies the power of sovereignty over state, in this case, the South Sudan. However, the chief mediator of South Sudan, Sayum Mesfin, says that changes have already been made to accommodate what the government has been complaining about. Nevertheless, now it is amended that the security of Juba will be ensured, according to this revised agreement, by an integrated police force composed of the government and the opposition forces of the warring parties. There will be an integrated police force to ensure security of Juba and other cities, other, other, other urban centers and other sites of these civilian protection camps like Bor, Malakal, Bentiu and others. Those troops in Juba will be only confined to their barracks to protect the warehouses of, in the barracks. Those who need not be deployed in these barracks to secure this then definitely would be redeployed, redeployed within 25 kilometers on the outskirts of Juba. So the question of demilitarization of Juba has been, have been amended to the satisfaction of the government. The other issue that has delayed government signing is the requirement that there be a reparation and compensation fund of those affected by the conflict. The agreement says that the government of national unity shall provide the initial funding of not less than $100 million per annum for the transitional period and shall cooperate with the international donors in the administration of pledges to the fund. The government of South Sudan finds this very unpractical since it says that it may be hard to determine who was affected, 
and to what extent. However, the South Sudan mediation insists that this must be put in place if peace and reconciliation will be achieved in South Sudan. During the pre-transitional period of 30 days, the agreement demands that the government of South Sudan and the South Sudan armed opposition, who are the rebels, shall create an enabling political, administrative, operational and legal environment for the delivery of humanitarian assistance and protection. The other issues provided by the agreement is the need for security sector reforms, economic reforms and institutional reforms that will guarantee developmental agenda for South Sudan. President Salva Kiir has already assured the U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry that he will sign the agreement. There is a proposition by the U.S. government that the U.N. Security Council should slap an arms embargo against South Sudan in case the government fails to sign the agreement. For now, it is only time that will tell if the government of South Sudan will indeed put its signature to the agreement and effect its implementation. Enjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. It's 8.20 Central African time. You're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now going back in time to today in 1982, the small kingdom of Swaziland was shocked when His Majesty King Sobuza II passed away at the age of 83 at the Embo State House. The king died after a successful reign of 60 years and was the longest reigning monarch in the world at the time. King Mswati III ascended the throne in 1986 at the age of 18 as the youngest reigning monarch in the world. And that was today in history in 1982. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thirteen cases of alleged sexual abuse have been reported against UN personnel in the Central African Republic since the rehatting of African troops under the UN flag in September last year. Nine of the cases involve minors. This was revealed by the deputy head of the UN mission to the country, MINUSCA, in a briefing via video link to journalists at the UN headquarters in New York. And while the first sexual abuse allegation was received in December, 2014, only one has been closed to date. And as shown Bryce Peace reports, we apologize for some of the minor audio hits, drops, which were as incoming from Bangui during the press conference. The mission's number two says sexual exploitation is a serious problem and one they're entirely determined to stamp out. But Diane Corner acknowledged the process can be slow when engaging troop-contributing countries that often have jurisdiction over UN personnel. The UN system as a whole uh, recognises that it is very important for troop contributing countries to respond quickly to these allegations. Uh, it's, uh, it's damaging to the United Nations if these allegations are not investigated and indeed if perpetrators are allowed to uh, go unpunished. Uh, but obviously, you know, we have to assume that uh, people, uh, according to due process, uh, we have to uh, assume that people are innocent until proven guilty. Corner explained that TCCs have 10 days to respond to an initial complaint from the UN, but up to six months to appoint an investigating officer. And of the 13 cases she listed, the first in December last year was found to be unsubstantiated and closed. The 12 others are pending, with some of the alleged perpetrators sent home 
while the investigations continue. In all cases involving troops serving with the UN peacekeeping operations, such as MINUSCA, the UN has to depend on the troops in country and their justice systems to deliver accountability. Her former boss, Babakar Gai, was relieved of his duties by the Secretary-General earlier this month over the abuse scandals, and we asked her how staff in the CAR took the news of his departure. On a personal level, um, uh, mission staff were, were sad to see the departure of, of uh, Secretary-General, uh, Special Representative Babakar Gai, uh, but I can assure you that um, the personnel of MINUSCA are professional, uh, and we recognize that uh, sometimes very difficult decisions have to be made for the good of the UN system as a whole. Uh, we very much uh, you know, welcome the, the UN Secretary General's uh, words of tribute uh, to the long service that Babakar Gai uh, paid to his service with the United Nations. But we also very much uh, look forward to working with his successor. In the latest development, the DRC government has announced it will investigate three troops accused of rape in Bambari, northeast of the capital Bangui, in the most recent allegations made by three women, one a minor, to emerge against the United Nations. I'm Sherwin Bricepies in New York. A new agreement between France and the UK to deal with the influx of migrants and refugees at a port city in northern France has been welcomed by the UN refugee agency, the UNHCR. The agency has hailed steps aimed at improving the living conditions and ensuring the rights of the estimated 3,000 people from strife-torn Syria, Sudan, Eritrea, Somalia and Afghanistan who have sought refuge in Calais. At least 10 people have died trying to cross the, the Channel Tunnel, linking France to the United Kingdom since June. UNHCR spokesperson William Spindler explains how the accord will help vulnerable asylum seekers and protect them from smugglers and traffickers. We welcome this agreement because we have been for a very long time asking for a cooperation between these two countries as the only way forward to deal with the situation. And also because although the um, agreement includes uh, many provisions about security, which we accept are necessary, they also have a series of provisions regarding the right for people to uh, have access to asylum, which for us is very important and part of the solution to this situation. It also uh, has uh, specific measures to improve the living uh, conditions of the people who are in the Calais region, access to asylum, accommodation issues, particularly the cases of women and children who are in a, in a very uh, vulnerable situation and could be um, subject to exploitation by traffickers and smugglers. So we, we are happy to see these provisions related to humanitarian issues and, uh, and we look forward to working with both governments to deal with this very complex issue. What specifically about the agreement is going to help fight human trafficking? There are a series of measures that are uh, listed in this agreement related to combating uh, illegal immigration and uh, trafficking and, uh, and smuggling of people. Uh, this is, I mean, there's a list of uh, security approaches and cooperation between two, two countries in, in, in this issue. These are uh, not related directly to UNHCR mandate, so I will not comment on, on them, uh, although we recognize the need to ensure security, safety, and uh, the free passage uh, of, of, of 
people between the two countries. For us, the important thing is that together with these measures that are necessary, um, the rights of uh, refugees and asylum seekers are respected, that uh, the humanitarian dimension is recognized and dealt with, and and we are uh, satisfied that this is uh, a step in the right direction. Where are the migrants and the refugees coming from? Many of them come from countries such as Syria, Sudan, uh, Eritrea, Somalia, and Afghanistan. All these countries are experiencing uh, either uh, political upheavals, human rights violations, or conflict. And therefore, many of these uh, people who are in Calais at the moment would qualify for refugee status. Um, the vast majority of them have not applied for asylum in in France because they want to go to the United Kingdom. So we are looking into what uh, solutions could be for this group. We think that uh, to facilitate the access to asylum in France would be the, the, the right thing for, for most of them. But in some cases, we have to look at other uh, solutions for those who are not in need of international protection, for example, those who are uh, trying to go to the United Kingdom purely for economic reasons, we need to look into the possibility of facilitating the return to the countries of origin, in, ideally in a voluntary way, uh, helping them to uh, go back and reintegrating. What do you think is needed long term to facilitate this process and to crack down on the trafficking? Well, what we think uh, needs to be done is to look into legal ways for refugees to have access to asylum in different European countries. And we would like wider cooperation between European countries. Uh, the situation in Calais is just one of a part of a general uh, crisis of asylum and, and migration happening in Europe today. And we would like cooperation between the different European countries to deal with this situation. That was William Spindler, spokesperson for the UNHCR, speaking to UN Radio's Maria Carlino. It's 8.30 Central African time, and our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. The United States has sharply criticized the inauguration of Pien Kurunziza for a third term as president of Burundi, warning that political dialogue and international efforts to mediate were key to bringing stability to that country. The Guinean government has signed an agreement with the opposition, making adjustments on two disputing points ahead of the October presidential election. And former South African President Tabumbeki says the debate around the South African government's decision not to arrest Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir needs to be discussed with the International Criminal Court. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. Former South African President Thabo Mbeki faced many tough questions of local and international concern in Pretoria yesterday. Mbeki was interacting with students at UNISA's Thabo Mbeki Leadership Institute. In a question-and-answer session, students quizzed the former president on a range of issues, including relations with China, the International Criminal Court, land and establishing a non-sexist society. Busi Chimombe reports. 
Opening address, former President Thabo Mbeki told the packed auditorium at UNISA Sunnyside Pretoria campus that theirs is an important calling, answering the almost unanimous lament across the continent for better leadership. On the international front, the students quizzed Mbeki on Africa's relations with global economic giant China, a reflection of a creeping perception that in relations between the two, the continent is getting the short end of the stick. China and Africa signed a comprehensive cooperation agreement in 2007. I think part of the challenge is that on the continent, we don't have enough strength to engage China to say we've got a signed agreement about our cooperation. And therefore, this kind of behavior is contrary to what has been agreed. The instrument is there, the agreement is there. What interventions we are making in order to make sure that that, that that agreement is respected, I don't know. With regards to the recent furore over South Africa's failure to arrest Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir, Mbeki said this has shown the need for dialogue between Africa and the International Criminal Court. The South African government took flag for failing to arrest Bashir when he attended the African Union summit in Santon in June, in line with its obligations under the Rome Statute. Mbeki is currently part of the African Union team, tasked with bringing about peace in Sudan. Because where you have the population of Sudan saying, we need this man in order to end the wars that are going on, and then you say somebody else comes and say, I need to arrest that person. So this thing needs to be discussed between the African continent and the, and the International Criminal Court, so that if it's necessary to amend whatever is in the Rome Statute, it's necessary to do that. Because this is a matter that arises all the time. It's what people who are required uh, to achieve peace, to end wars, to end conflicts, you can't take that person away and say, in the interest of justice, I'm going to take away and let the war continue. Turning to local matters, Becky said that a proper study needs to be done into the land question in South Africa. He observed that many South Africans do not have an appetite for farming, having been dispossessed of their land over a century ago and therefore opting for cash rather than claiming land taken from them. Becky says land for housing appears to be a more pressing issue. You see all of these squatter areas around our townships. We've got to get rid of these uh, slum areas. And they require land, and a lot of the land around the urban areas is privately owned. So the state, if you want to do municipal housing, first of all you've got to buy this land. And the prices are not there, they are are up there. So, matter of urban land, not for growing tomatoes and vegetables and food security issues, but for building houses. Becky said that the need to establish a non-sexist society has largely been a slogan rather than a reality. He concurred with the observations made by the National Development Plan that there have not been enough professionals in the gender sector to implement a more equal society. I would think when you then say we are building a non-sexist society, you must seek to answer this question. Why are more women dying from diabetes than men? Is it what they are eating? What is it? And then attend to it. You gender mainstream the matter of an approach to health. Because I think that basically, as the National Development Plan says, we never quite understood what gender mainstreaming meant and didn't quite understand the importance of this instrument in terms of the transformation of society. The Q&A sessions with Mbeki routinely take place at the beginning of each semester and there are plans to take Tamali's work beyond UNISA to other universities on the continent.
That report by Busi Chimombe. Zimbabwe's Labour Amendment Bill has sailed through the Senate after the ZANU-PF-dominated Upper House rejected changes proposed by the opposition. It now awaits being signed into law by the country's President, Robert Mugabe. The opposition had proposed more debate on a bill it believes threatens several constitutional rights. Shinganyoka has more from Harare. Senate debated and voted in favor of passing the amendments in a day after the Labour Minister said delaying the bill further would pose a security threat. 20,000 workers have lost their jobs in the last month in both government-owned and private companies. The bill was passed despite protestations from the Opposition Movement for Democratic Change that it would invite legal challenges. MDC Senator David Chimini explains. If you look at the Constitution, uh, we talk about uh, the right to strike, the right for collective bargain. We also talk about uh, issues uh, where you have a fair or unfair dismissal. All these issues are not properly covered in the bill. If we were given an opportunity, we would even propose a two-month salary for every ESF because you are saying this person has worked and is now going into the street. When signed into law, the bill will work retrospectively, giving workers dismissed on notice the right to return to the negotiating table for retrenchment packages. Workers say, though, that the proposed two weeks' pay for every year worked doesn't go far enough to cushion them in the event of retrenchment. If you look, a person has got uh, four years on employment, he or she will get a, a lump sum of maybe he or she will be earning a 300, 300 by, by two, which is a 600, which is now a very little amount of money. If the government doesn't survive, the, con- the economy is going to go down. If I'm going to be retrained, if I'm going to be unemployed, my dependents again, they're going to suffer. Which is the, what is the win-win situation? That's the, main, that's the million dollar question. Business says it will continue to negotiate with government. Zimbabwe's National Chamber of Commerce spokesperson, Davison Norupiri. Nothing uh, much was introduced. It's only the issue of the three months notice, of which it's actually cheaper for the employer if you are to lay off people who have served less than six years. So it's one and the same thing, and actually I think it has got some advantages on both sides. It's not really something which we can say we cannot work with that. Other business representatives are more militant. They say they will legally challenge the retrospective clause. The bill is likely to be signed into law by next week, but it's unlikely to bring closure to employees or employers anytime soon. I'm Shingai Nyoka in Harare. Medical experts who gathered in Johannesburg, South Africa yesterday agreed that there's a great need for new innovative ideas if the corner is to be turned on TB. The Discovery Foundation, an in-depth and independent trust that invests in the improvement of healthcare, brought together experts from both the private and public health sectors to exchange ideas on some of the best ways to fight tuberculosis. Elizabeth Lidija attended the event at Falta's report. The statistics are well known and devastating. South Africa has one of the highest tuberculosis incidence rates in the world, with close to a 1,000 people out of 100,000 people living with the disease. TB is closely linked to HIV. According to the World Health Organization, WHO, people who are HIV positive are about 12 to 20 times more likely to contract TB than those living free of the disease. 
Both Swaziland and South Africa have among the highest HIV prevalence rates globally. While the picture looks grim, some experts believe not all hope is lost. Dr. Maurice Goodman, Discovery Health Head of the Health Professional Strategy, says this is why such forums are critical. I think it's critical and I think uh, much was said in the forum about one of the problems or the challenges with us as a nation addressing TB is that it's, it's not really recognized as a problem to the extent as, for example, HIV and AIDS, which kind of exploded on the scene a decade or more ago and has received a lot of attention and a lot of funding. TB's kind of always been there in the background and what people in, in the forum were saying is that it's not attracting the necessary funding, the necessary attention to enable us to, to put enough effort into it as a nation to combat. I think forums like this which expose these kinds of issues to the general population is critical. Like many of his peers, Dr. Sani Batunde, head of the TB program for the WHO in South Africa, envisions a world free of TB with zero deaths and suffering. This, he says, can be achieved through, among other things, more research, innovations and partnerships intensify research and innovation and this has to do with discovery development and optic of new tools that is being developed new tools means things that are being uh, discovered like a vaccine if there is a new vaccine that can prevent a tb or if there is a diagnosis genus part was a new tool is becoming relatively old now so but how do we encourage the discovery of this how do we encourage the development of this and how do we ensure that there's a rapid uptake that will benefit the society that needs it most also research to optimize implementation. Professor Linda Gail Becker of the non-governmental organization the Desmond Tutu HIV Center says a solid audit on the epidemic is needed to find out what we know and what we don't. The point was made and I think it's a very well meant point that you've got to know your epidemic and your response to your own epidemic. I think the problem when we get directives even from the World Health Organization you know, it doesn't know South Africa's, the burden of our HIV, the extent of our adolescent. We're about to move into a huge adolescent population known as the African Youth Bulge. You know, what does that mean to TB, to HIV and to other public health issues? So I think we do need to come at this with a very South African focus. But there are some real gaps in the cascade if you like all the way from you're a susceptible who hasn't got TB all the way through to you've got TB and you need to be cured and we need to see where in the gaps of that whole process where those gaps are and how to fill them in a way that is meaningful to South Africa. Dr. Nobet Njeka is the director for the TB, drug-resistant TB and HIV at the country's National Health Department. He admits the fight against the lung disease has been plagued by several challenges. These include counting the number of people who are diagnosed every day. The challenges are that uh, we have a problem. We struggle with counting number of patients diagnosed. I think there's a lot of debate. We don't have one figure which is unanimously accepted. As you would know, a lot of our patients do not provide their ID numbers when they seek in our facilities to an extent that uh, a patient could uh, give sputum in KZN and in Pumalanga and in Gauteng 
Now you'll be thinking you've got three people diagnosed with MDR-TBS is one person. So we've got a bit of uh, duplication. We really need a unique identifier in the system. As tuberculosis continues to spread relentlessly, targets are being set, policies pursued, and systems pushed with the hope to one day end and eliminate the epidemic. The great need for action has also seen South Africa's researchers and scientists produce world-leading diagnostic methods and therapies in the TB battle. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Elizabeth Lidira in Johannesburg. It's 8.43 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Let's go back in time to today in 2001 documents released by the National Security Archive, a U.S.-based research organization, show U.S. officials knew of the Rwandan government's involvement in the 1994 genocide. That was Today in History in 2001. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Dear listener, would you like to be featured on our website? Send us interesting pictures such as those of people, events, or anything you think is unique and interesting. Be part of our website and share those memorable moments with Channel Africa and the rest of the world. Don't miss this opportunity. Take a picture now, tomorrow, and every day. Pictures can be sent to info at channelafrica.org. That's info at channelafrica.org. You can view your pictures on www.channelafrica.co.za. That's www.channelafrica.co.za. And also on our Facebook page. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Culture and joy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Africa, rise and shine. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. Informing the world about Africa. Ntakwanangatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.46 Central African time and our economics update up next.
I'm Tabi Solohoku with this economic update. South African grocer ShopRite is to open a new store in Tete, Mozambique, as companies in Africa's second largest economy spread their wings elsewhere across the continent. The new ShopRite store will be housed at a new shopping center in Tete, where it will be anchored, or rather, where it will be the anchor tenant, according to property developer Terrace Africa, and will open later this year. The property development company is earmarking new shopping malls in Zimbabwe, Zambia, and Mozambique in the next few years. South Africa's power utility, Eskom's inability to keep up with the country's energy requirements has emerged as the biggest concern for the country's manufacturing sector. The 2015 second quarter manufacturing circle report has shown that business conditions for the industry remained muted. Amina Akram reports. The survey reveals that the sector's performance continues to face challenges that threatens its sustainability. 73% of those surveyed indicated that business conditions in the second quarter were either poor or fragile. Pan-African economist Iraj Abidian says the sector has been grappling with a growing energy problem, which is getting worse. The Zambia Chamber of Mines says electricity shortages are the biggest problem facing the mining sector as it has further hurt companies battling depressing international copper prices. The Chamber says it is not correct to say mining companies are doing better with the copper price at 5 US dollar per ton than when the price was 2000 US dollars. Cabinet announced that the government was no longer in a position to continue subsidizing mining companies for their power. Botswana has halved its 2015 growth forecast due to expected weakness in the diamond market. The government now expects the economy of the world's biggest diamond producer to grow by 2.6% this year. In February, Finance Minister Kenneth Matambo had announced a growth target of 4.9% for 2015. World trade has slowed in the past decade. Professor Douglas Irwin in the Department of Economics at Dartmouth College and associate of the National Bureau of Economic Research says countries need to shift from focusing on trade barriers at borders to domestic reforms that will help entrepreneurs get their goods to port cities for export. Well, one thing that people are worried about is the slowdown in the rate of growth of world trade. In the 1990s, it grew exceptionally rapidly and uh, world trade was booming. And over the past decade or so, the rate of growth has been quite slow. It partly reflects the fact that the world economy is growing much more slowly. A U.S. dollar will cost you 12.90 in South Africa, 10.01 in Botswana, 7.94 in Zambia, 6.3 British pound, 8.9 euro, gold 1.150 dollars, a platinum 1.030 dollars an ounce, brand crude for six dollars, six one cents a barrel. Channel Africa's economic update. My name is Tabiso Lahoku. Our sports updates up next with Tommy Kuza.
Thanks for joining us in your sport. Let's start with soccer, where South African national football team Bafana Bafana will take on Mauritius early next month in their second qualifying match for the 2017 Africa Cup of Nations. Bafana coach Sheikh Mashaba has taken a gamble on the fitness of several key players in naming his 25-member squad in Johannesburg yesterday. Mashaba says they will come with a different approach to Mauritania. Approaches, I mean, we are sitting now on one point. It says to us we've got to win the next coming game. And it's gonna, we're going to throw the game at, at, at uh, Mauritania. We don't want to give them time to come at us. From the first whistle, let's go up. The Bafana coach yesterday expressed his disappointment at the way Dean Ferman's case of joining Supersport United was handled by media. It has been so much interesting to listen to the media, top journalists, talking about the openings that are happening in football, especially after Dean was signed by Supersport. But at the same time, I was disappointed to hear the media saying our league is third best. And now in cricket, the Proteus took a 1-0 lead in the three-match ODI series against New Zealand with a 20-run victory at the Supersport Park in Centurion. Vice-Captain Hashim Amla's South African record of the 21st ODI century of 124 of 126 balls, including 13 fours and three sixes in a second wicket stand of 185 with Ryle Rousseau, who was on 89 from 125 balls, was superb. Captain A.B. de Villiers says that he was pleased with the way they performed with the bat, but they have a lot to improve on the other departments. I was a little bit disappointed with our energy in the field as a unit together. That probably just comes with a bit of time played together. A couple of new faces that need to get used to the way I captain, the way we operate as a team. And I don't know exactly what went wrong, but I just didn't feel that energy that I normally feel around from the guard. And now in netball, the South African national netball team is officially the top-ranked African team following a successful World Cup in Sydney in Australia, where they finished fifth. The Spa Proteus beat Malawi when it matters most in their last classification match to finish fifth, and in doing so, they swept places. Netball South Africa CEO Blanche de la Guaya could not contain her excitement. Oh, of course, yes, we're very happy. And uh, we could see the huge um, improvement in our team's performance on court. And I could also see, I would travel with the team, so I could see that the, the coach, uh, Norma Plummer, tried different um, combinations on court and prepared the team to go to the World Cup. And in tennis, top seed Novak Djokovic and Stan Wawrinka each survived a scare at the Cincinnati Masters yesterday to reach the quarterfinals where they will clash in a rematch of the French Open final. Meanwhile, South Africa's Kevin Anderson was beaten by Roger Federer 6-1-6-1 in the third round of the Cincinnati Masters. Federer will now face Feliciano Lopez in the quarterfinals. Here is Roger Federer on his next match against Lopez. Played a lot against him in my life. Uh, play a good breaker and obviously everybody knows how well he can serve he also beat Rayonich here now Rafa so clearly he's on a run and uh, you know I'm looking forward to that match you know I know since a long time like I said and finally in golf David Horsley is the mate in Denmark event in round two the three-time European winner is eight under par and one clear of Oliver Farr while Soren Shelton flies the flag for the home country at Himalayan Golf and Spa Resort Nick Dye reports Horses having a solid, if unspectacular year, rarely threatening a further victory, and yet it's been a spectacular start. An eagle and five birdies on the front nine had him thinking of that magical number of 59. The fact that he couldn't keep the pace going frustrates him a little, but he's proud of the way he's handled himself in moving clear. 
Farr has missed the last three cuts, but time off at home has helped, and he too has enjoyed a prolific spell, with likewise an eagle and five birdies. Scoring's been excellent in sunny conditions, so there are a lot of players feeling in with a shout, including Paul Laurie, Bradley Dredge, and Kelson, who's been accorded a hero's welcome with flag-waving Danes at the 16th, having reached the milestone of 500 tour events. And that's the end of our sport. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at this hour. Burundi's President Pierre Nkurunziza sworn in for a third term and the UN vows to stamp out sexual abuse by peacekeepers in the Central African Republic. That wraps up Africa, rise and shine today and for the week. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuzo Ramagaza and Elizabeth Lidicha, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email. Email at info at channelafrica.co.za or an SMS on 277-969-57930 or you can also tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Huma Segela with a song titled Tanai. Tanai.